Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for a special review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We're still doing these, Mark. Of course we're still doing these. That's 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 what we do, Dan. It is. I've, we got several questions about this, but... Regardless, we hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, and Dan, you know, normally for the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we have been taking a look at the uh, Spider-Man hitting the big time with during the Stan Lee, John Romita Sr. run on Amazing Spider-Man, but... You know, we're doing something a little different here with these review roundup episodes. Today, we're going to be rounding up our Patreon reviews of Amazing Spider-Man number 800 and 801, uh, the final two issues of the dance slot run of the title. Uh, we originally recorded these conversations back when the issues were first released to our Patreon audience. Hint, hint, if you want them first. Right. So on that note, remember, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers whose very patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show, like our last episode with Mark Wade, which you guys told us you really liked. So this helps us keep doing things like that, and it helps us do all the research it takes for us to produce the show. Surprisingly enough, Mark and I are not always experts on all the topics that we're talking about. I think probably the Toys episode was our biggest stretch, Mark. Yeah, but, you know, I, I feel we, we, we made, it, made it work. Well, right, because we're allowed to have, like, you know, some of the research opportunities by our Patreon subscribers. So if Absolutely. You, if you enjoy the show and you want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content, like these very reviews that we're about to play when they were originally released on our Patreon account, you know, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. You'll see a link there in the show notes that'll take you right to where you need to be and let you in on everything you need to know. Yes, Dan. And on another special note, we wanted to remind everyone that we are rapidly approaching our 200th episode at the end of August, and we want to feature your calls on the show. So give us a ring at our great hotline, 9RedGoblin. Remember, we had Red Goblin first. And leave us a message with your name, where you're calling in from, and any memories you may have listening to the show. We'd love to know more about you and what you've enjoyed from our journey from episode 100 to 200. Uh, Dan and I are busy putting together one of the most exciting shows yet for this episode and know that your voices will really help pull the whole thing together. Mark, what are we going to be doing for this episode that's still a little bit up in the air? Well, I mean, we're still feeling things out, but um, you know, Dan and I will be attending Terrificon. Uh, that's Connecticut's big Comic-Con up at Mohegan Sun uh, the weekend of August 17th through the 19th. While we're there, we're hoping to talk to uh, a bevy of 
Spider-Man creators from past and present. Folks include like Nick Spencer and Roger Stern and Ron Friends and and Mike Zeck and I mean the list goes on and on. Dan, I mean lots of, lots of big names from from Spider-Man history and obviously comics history are going to be there and we hope to get them to kind of chime in on. Uh, some of the topics that are relevant to the, sh- the shows we've done over the last hundred episodes and just spider talk in general. So uh, I think that 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 should be pretty cool, right? Yeah. And also our very own history, the history of the show, because, Mark, the first time you and I ever met was at a Connecticut convention. I think this convention before it changed its name. And uh, we kicked off the show with a whole round of interviews. So in a way, it's kind of like a five year reunion for us. Exactly. I mean, we have seen each other. In between those five years. <laughs> right, right. Like but but not not in sustained periods of time like this. Correct, correct. This is this is gonna be the first time in a really long time where Dan and I are kinda of gonna be locked in uh, a room together for many hours. So hopefully there's still a show at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you are going to be at Terrificon, please come and say hi to us or tweet at us and find a time to come meet up with us. Uh, don't be shy about it. We would love to meet you guys. Uh, there's no reason to not just come and say, hey, what's up? So we look forward to meeting some of you guys there. All right, Dan. Well, I can't wait to have that time with you up in Connecticut, even if it might mean the end of the show from us being locked in a room with each other. But You're really in the pushing end, this. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe. Uh, but in the interim, let's get to the actual topic of our show here. Let's get to that review of the enormous Amazing Spider-Man number 800. It's a centennial issue of Amazing Spider-Man, always a big event. Uh, I have lots of nostalgic memories of picking up centennial issues over the years and you know, sometimes they live up to the expectations, sometimes they don't. But 800, um, in addition to us being grown-ups now and stuff, I mean, like, it, it, it has some very big significance to the Marvel and Spider-Man universe because this is kind of marking um, the end of the dance slot era. I know he gets one more issue as kind of a prologue, but for all intents and purposes, this is, this is the send-off, right, Dan? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a certain finality to this issue, weirdly. It almost doesn't make sense that we're getting another issue. I couldn't even tell you what that issue is going to be about. Uh, I mean, the cover certainly doesn't really tell us. Maybe it's about the people around Spider-Man. But enough about that issue. This issue itself, to me, felt really like, this is it. This is the end. Dan Slott headed off into the horizon on a boat or whatever you want to say. Yeah, and, and, you know, kind of just looking at this from the big picture to start things off, I mean, I think this this kind of captured – the dance slot era well in that and you know this might sound like a little backhanded but you know there were certainly parts more so in the beginning where i felt like this story was kind of struggling to get off its feet was kind of way down in exposition and trying to be a little too cute in areas uh but then once it got humming and the ideas um became clear and well laid out i mean this story really hit its marks and hit it well hit it stronger than um i think a lot of other big stories that had preceded it had. I mean, you know, it kind of lived up to the hype where it hits, but then it's a little uneven. 
kind of like the dance thought era in 10 years, I'd say. I don't know. Is that is that an okay assessment from your end? <laughs> yeah, no, this might be the most dance thought comic ever made. And and it certainly has the ability to be so because it's – I think it's one of the longest issues of Amazing Spider-Man ever printed. Is there an issue that's longer than this one? I was trying to rack my brain and think of it. I couldn't come up with anything. I mean, maybe there's one of those like original graphic novels from the um, the 80s. Like, uh, I don't know if Spider-Man Wolverine might have had a higher page count or like there's like that Spider-Man Doctor Strange one. Um, but even those, I think, were probably in the 60 to 70 page range. So, yeah, I think I think this, you know, in terms of a single uh, binded issue of Spider-Man comics, I think this is as big and uh, as as bloated as it gets. And I don't say bloated as a negative, but it's it's a big one, guys. It's certainly better than things we've gotten in recent. I mean, I think about Amazing Spider-Man Volume 4, Number 25, with all the backups that were mostly garbage. You know, here we're getting a mainline story. You know, it might as well be a trade paperback. <laughs> I mean, right. there, there are trade paperbacks shorter than this. Although the, the trade-off of that approach, Dan, and it's kind of one of my critiques of this issue is – you know, and and I understand logistically why it had to be this way, but um, you know, this comic, um, even though it's one uh, singular story, it gets broken up into these different chapters, and and each chapter has a different art team assigned to it. And it's nice that each art team, uh, well, for the most part, a few, few exceptions, uh, kind of represents a uh, a different uh, artist that worked with Dan Slott. Although no Ryan Stegman, maybe he was too busy doing Venom. Um, but it's a shame because it would have been great to see Stegman uh, in this issue. So, you know, we got Roberto Ramos and Giuseppe Camoncoli and, of course, Stuart Eminen and Marcos Martin, uh, among others. And, you know, it's it's great to have all these different artists and to kind of give them a, a, a final bow for their work with, with, with Dan Slott. But I also felt having all these different styles and, I mean, you know, a lot of these artists are quite different stylistically from each other i mean compare ramos to imminent uh, or martin it kind of at moments took me out of the story to have such shifts and you know i feel even in retrospect that slot works with certain artists better than others and you know i i i have to say that i liked the store the elements of the stories better with those artists like certainly like Stuart imminent who we've talked about at length on this show in terms of his synergy with slot uh and it kind of like you know, it makes me wonder, is it truly that I liked these parts of the story better because they're narratively better or because the artist just works better with Dan Slott or, you know what I mean, kind of a chicken and an egg situation? Uh, and that kind of took me out of it at points, too. So that's kind of like, yeah, we didn't get uh, the what's what's our favorite backup to make fun of from uh, that issue 25? Uh, Marvel yeah. Sum Sums. The Sum Sums. No, we didn't get Sum Sums. Thank goodness. But kind of the trade-off of doing one single story that's 96 pages long is he had to break the art up, which I feel has some deterrence attached to it as well. Did you feel that way, or am I just being sticky on this? I didn't really feel that way. I mean, I think it's hard for any of these artists to stand up to Stuart Eminem and his abilities. I mean, he's just, just so head and tails above all these other artists, I think. Is that too critical? 
Uh, no, and, and let's, we should note uh, in terms of news, it's the recently uh, announced to be retiring Stuart Nimmin, which is kind of like, oh, no, <laughs> I want more. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, talk about a swan song here. I mean, I'm glad we were able to get him on this book before, you know, he, he left comics forever, although it doesn't really sound like that might not. He has said that he just doesn't have anything planned. So he right. may come back, you know, one of those typical artist retirements where you take a few years and then decide suddenly you're not retired anymore. Right, um, right. Think about like Steven Soderbergh, who's retired right. half a dozen times. There you go. But no, it didn't, it didn't break me out of the story as much as you're suggesting. My big problem with this issue, and I think it maybe the art contributes to this, is that the structure of the story is so repetitive for such a long time. It's yeah. a lot of checking in on this character and going to a new location and participating in that and then moving on to the next location and moving on to the next location. And it feels very, um, you know, like it's broken up into chapters, which it is. And so you can't help but feel like there, there's never a real solid forward momentum until we really get to like Stuart Emin and stuff where it really feels like it's just going and building naturally one after the other. Yeah, I get it. But it's like, I mean, I guess for me, it's like you take someone like Humberto Ramos's section. And we'll, I mean, we'll talk about all the sections individually as well, obviously. But, you know, like here, here's Ramos and I like Ramos a lot. And he's got a very definitive style. And um, and because of his style, his section, it's kind of it's so stylized and, and not I want to say cartoony, but, uh, you know, it, it's almost sections of it are almost comical and, and it's kind of freak showness, <laughs> like certainly like the Normie Osborne attacking that May stuff um, and all the symbiote stuff. And then you compare that with obviously like Eminent or even Marcos Martin, where there's such a gravitas to the art that they do. It, it, it really just feels like dramatically different stories within the same thing. And you're, and you just kind of, I don't know the way the story ended up was there was such gravita, gravitas to the story that you kind of just wished like why couldn't why couldn't the tone have been like that throughout I mean instead it kind of like I feel like it, it it altered the tone a bit from section to section which you know I I I'm one of those people when I read a book or a comic or any any kind of narrative I I, I like consistency in tone in terms of how something is is written and presented and and when the tone diverts and changes on the dime too quickly uh it throws me off yeah i can totally sympathize with that and um i think there is some of that here at least i mean I, even if i don't feel like it took me that much out of the to- comic i i did feel it a little bit but then there's also the whole like time constraints of comic making and i already think that this book is a miracle of editorial arrangements. I mean, getting all these guys' schedules together to make this happen is is kind of a miracle. Yeah, I mean, that's why I prefaced it by saying I understand why it had to happen this way, you know, because it could, there would have been no other way. Yeah. Uh, and and that, you know, so I get it. It's, it's, you know, like you take, you have to sacrifice a little something to get something like this. And I feel that was the sacrifice. Is it, was it enough to, um, completely ruin the issue for me? No, no. But I mean, like, if we're looking, you know, to to set up some critiques and and you know, I think it, not for nothing, it will also explain why certain things in this comic as a whole worked for me and certain things didn't. You know, because I feel that with the different art teams, you know, the execution on certain things probably slipped through the cracks, whereas in other sections, everything was was completely in sync with each other. 
Well, before we really get into the story and the micro beats, I just want to say I feel like we said this is very Dan Slotty, but I, 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 what that means overall towards the book is kind of hard to judge because you and I have been so back and forth on what we think about Dan Slott as a comic book writer. And I have to say, just getting my overall impression of this book before we get into nitpicking it, is that I love this book and I think that Dan Slott's emotional writing, this might be one of his most emotionally written books with the biggest emotional peaks that we've ever seen from him. And to me, that really allowed me to overlook a lot of the nitpicks because it so moved me uh, literally to the point of tears at least three or four times reading the book, which I can't even remember the last time a comic made me feel that way. Um, And certainly I have a vested interest in Spider-Man or or, or a, a history with the character that makes me more prone to that. But I thought, man, if someone can move me that emotionally... There's something really working here, even despite many of the numerous things that we're about to detail as we go through it. So I don't know. Did you have a similar experience to that or or did was the kind of unevenness of this? Did it keep you emotionally distanced? It, I, I think it, it distanced me a little more. I mean, I quite like this, Dan. I don't want to make it sound like I didn't, but I don't know if it if it connected with me to the level that you are. I mean. You know, we'll 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 talk at the end. You know, kind of addressing one of the questions from one of our reader our listeners about favorite centennial issues and kind of where it stacks up. Um, I, I I definitely would rank this among one of the best single issues of Dan Slott's run. But all the same, there the the there were just too many little things that kind of dings more so in the front half of this book that, that keep me that it's not that it took me out of the emotional beats at the end, but it's like, I enjoyed those emotional beats, but I, I, I couldn't completely divorce them from the stuff that I felt dinged to the issue in the beginning. So it's, it's kind of like my entire relationship with the Dan Slott run, which is that I, I think at the end of the day, he's one of the better creators to have worked on Spider-Man, but I, I always hesitate to um, put, truly put him on a pedestal because I just feel there's just so much unevenness that even the stuff of his that really clicks and works for me inevitably kind of gets overshadowed by some of the stuff that really didn't work for me. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair. And I, I feel more similar to that that I may express on this show because of just how well this book worked on me. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I can totally see how this would work on somebody. Like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> just, um, it just didn't, it just wasn't enough of that for me to, to, I think, keep the level. I mean, judging on your written review on our, our website, I just don't think I'm at that level, but I, you know, I, I, again, I quite liked it. I, I think that's a, that's a, you know, a fair statement on my part. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's start off discussing the little details of this book. So we're going to start it off where everything starts off with chapter one, which is crawling through the wreckage with art by Nick Bradshaw and colors by Edgar Delgado. And this is kind of picks up at the, where the last book ended with, Spider-Man checking in on his friends, and they're all, I guess, kind of fine-ish. 
I was surprised that Flash and Anti-Venom were, I guess, still alive. I guess more the Anti-Venom part of it. Um, and then Spider-Man checks in on the Osbournes and kind of decides to go and get an Anti-Venom costume for himself. Any thoughts about this kind of opening chapter, the the art by Nick Bradshaw, the the kind of way the book opens up? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it, it's funny. Like it, it, this, this, this was probably the weakest section for me on a lot of levels. And as I'm reading, I, I just reading this for the first time, I'm like already kind of like, oh god, I'm bracing myself. Because you know, just to backtrack here, for seven ninety nine, I feel like you and I had quite, I don't want to say quite different views on it, but it, it was certainly one of our bigger disagreements that we've had on this show in terms of our final opinion on an issue. And, um, you know, this was kind of the setup here was kind of bracing me for like, oh, God, I'm going to have 96 pages of something that I don't like. And and um, it obviously ended up not being the case. But I think part of it was I felt that um, especially in comparison to everyone who followed uh, Bradshaw's art for me was definitely the weakest. It just it just felt very unrefined and, and, and just kind of flat to me. Uh, wasn't wasn't very not a lot of risk um, or excitement on these pages, nothing very dynamic. It's very heavily laden with exposition. We're just kind of laying everything out. Like you say, Peter's talking about going after anti-venoms and this and that. And, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? Just kind of also 2020 high signing this a bit, you know, considering what was to come later on in the comic, the big twist involving what Norman Osborn's ultimate plot of revenge against Peter was, it kind of made me think, you know, on a second and third reading of this comic, I was like, I, I felt that this this opening scene was even weaker because, like, I felt like this could have been a good opportunity to establish um, more concern and like drama with with Peter and his his quote unquote sidekicks here. I mean, this was this is kind of a very, you know, I felt rudimentary check in, um, but you know, there wasn't like this. You know, you didn't get a lot of inner monologue with Peter, like, oh, man, what would have happened if if Miles died or, you know, like, what's what am I, you know, I, I, I put these people in danger and this, look what happened. It, I, I just felt like it was very superficial, if that makes sense. Yeah, to me, this is also the weakest part of the story and also really lets down several of the twists that come later, like you said. The kind of, I don't know what we're going to call them, the carnage needles that are in everybody. Yeah, yeah. I felt like there was a better opportunity to express the kind of like visual concern over these things. They're almost, I wouldn't say that you would blink and miss them because they made a point of them in the last issue, but they're not visually threatening. And I guess they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be something that you think, well, they might be okay, but there's a twist to come down the road. And I guess... It's the challenge of doing a twist where you you don't want to signpost it because you want to reveal it later. But the way the twist plays out later in this book, I think it could have used a little more, oh, what are these things? I can't get them out of everybody. You you know what I mean? I mean, but also just Peter's, I feel like overall concern for his friends here, because I mean, like, you know, we 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 don't you don't have to work hard to build the stakes about. MJ or Aunt May being in danger. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you got 60 years of Spider-Man history to, well, I mean, you have many decades of Spider-Man history uh, that, that inform the, 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 the dire straits of those situations. But, you know, certainly with Miles and Silk and, and Clash, I mean, you know, like 
we, these these characters are, are are relatively very new to the game. Uh, they're not frequent team up partners of Spider-Man's. I mean, you, Johnny was, but like I, Johnny Storm is, but I feel like there's not even I don't even know if the if there was a beat with Johnny Storm with Norman at the end when he's revealing his plan. Was he even in the shot? I, I don't think he was. Which I mean, you know, you would have thought like maybe like I'm gonna kill like your longest tenured super buddy. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 I just feel like. Like more could have been done to express Peter's guilt and remorse. I mean, because you know the guilt of, of Peter is a well that you can go back to over and over again. Because I feel like if if they did that more here, it would have set up exactly just how maniacal Norman's plan was. I mean, basically, I was kind of like when Norman laid out his plan with the carnage needles. It's like, oh no, MJ. Oh no, Aunt May. Oh no, some other people. <laughs> you know. Oh no, Harry, you know, like, I mean, these are all people that, um, because of who these characters are and the history, you don't need to sell it as much, but I feel like this could have been sold more. And, and there was certainly ample opportunity either via inner monologue or, or outer, uh, dialogue to show Peter really being concerned for the welfare of these people and, and what a, a tragedy involving them would have done to him. And, and cause that would have set things up, up much better later. I also think it kind of undercut the ending of 799 where you get this bold dramatic move from Flash where he like uses the last of the anti-venom to heal Spider-Man. And you know, I would happily trade that moment for the moments that we get with Flash in this book. And I I wonder if that moment could have been transposed into this book where Spider-Man is you know, finally going to take the fight to the Red Goblin and Flash not only saves his friends, but then in his final moment, when he's clinging to life, he, you know, gives the last of his life to Peter. Um, it's kind of a repeat of that moment. And this seems the first kind of like heads up that that moment would be undone because I so thought anti-venom was killed. I mean, I guess it wasn't explicitly stated, but it certainly seemed like that was the sacrifice that we had witnessed uh, you know, just a few pages ago. Yeah, definitely. Now, the other big uh, plot development of this section is uh, Jameson, J. Jonah Jameson, still trying to make things right, um, <laughs> including a. Uh, so he goes to look up Eddie Brock at the. Uh, what what paper is he technically at now? It's is it. Um, is it the Globe? Frontline or yeah, maybe the Globe. I, I, you know, forgive me. I can't keep track. Uh, <laughs> but um and then we get a joke which you know i chuckled but um i think was also mainly done to needle uh sony movies <laughs> um about the pronunciation of sim simbi or symbiote <laughs> uh, did you enjoy that joke then <laughs> yeah i did i uh i'm i'm surprised that joke had a time to make it into the pages of this uh, you know, like that trailer was not that long ago. It makes me wonder how late the scripting was going on for this book. Dan Slott, knowing him, probably saw the trailer and was like, wait, I got a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I thought that was really funny. <laughs> I like the idea that Jonah now tipped off to Spider-Man's deceit for all these years. is suddenly just spotting these guys left and right. Uh, you know, everyone is doing this, this trick. 
Yeah, now that it's no longer, you know, now that what has long been in front of his face has finally been exposed, he can, he can see everything now. <laughs> and I thought it was a clever idea of him to try to slowly insert himself in every way possible. We'll talk about what he does later, but, uh, you know, if you're going to need the Venom symbiote for this story, I thought this is a pretty organic way of doing it. I think last episode we expressed our anxiety about them incorporating the anti-venom suit into this issue because we had seen the preview art that showed spider-man in some kind of symbiote and uh you know i thought in terms of setting this story up that actually worked kind of well yeah definitely i mean we could talk about how the ultimate execution of how spider-man got the the symbiote but um uh, yeah i definitely like jonah kind of inserting himself here i mean obviously he's got a lot to prove for himself uh, since this whole entire disaster is of his creation, you know, again, it kind of it's it's you know, I still have very mixed feelings about the whole reveal from Spectacular Spider-Man involving Jonah knowing Peter's identity, but um, this at least pays that off. I feel fairly well, like kind of Jonah trying to make it right, uh, and then everything that kind of follows with Jonah in this issue. Jonah's Jonah's very strong. I actually, you know, in terms of kind of feeling. As I was reading this story, characters who might bite the dust, I, I, I was ready for Jonah to bite the dust in this uh, comic, the way things were kind of building initially with him. What about you? Yeah, that's what I thought would happen in this. I mean, he's been a big part of Slot's run for such a long time, from the very beginning, the kind of sins of Jonah and his kind of continual circling around the drain in a way, we do get the death of Jonah here. Like this old Jonah persona, I think is no more. You know, it, yeah. it is, and and this kind of sold me on the whole idea more than anything in the spectacular Spider-Man issue did. The we'll get to talking about the final scenes of this issue, but uh, I found that really moving, and and uh, and I think the the plot for Jonah here was really well kind of laid out, starting starting here. Um, yeah. Let's talk about chapter two, Too Many Targets, with art by Humberto Ramos. Uh, we got like three or four stories going on here. We got Spider-Man sneaking into Alchemax, the former site of Horizon Labs through Morbius' tunnels, and kind of squaring off against the Red Goblin. We've got MJ dealing with Venom showing up at uh, Stark Tower. Uh, and eventually kind of them teaming up to fight the Red Goblin. And we've got Normie attacking Aunt May in her home uh, as the Goblin Child. I, I, I don't really know how I feel about that name for a character before right. Otto shows up and protects her. So a lot going on in this chapter. A lot of Humberto Ramos pages, which was kind of nice to see. Yeah, I, it was definitely a pleasant surprise when I saw Ramos back on this. And I feel like, you know, of all the chapters uh, to give him, this was certainly the most appropriate for him. I like how Ramos does uh, symbiotes. Uh, I think before we went recording, you described them as being very sticky, uh, which is a good descriptor of uh, how Ramos uh, interprets them. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a kind of long sticky slimy factor to them that um you know probably ryan otley would do a good job with based on your description of him right yeah absolutely oh his venom is the best you know kind of in theme with this issue in terms of kind of gaining steam there were parts of this section that 
uh, worked for me, parts not so much, some good jokes, some not so good jokes. I always like to look at, at the the supporting cast when, when we're in a book like this, and especially since Slot has worked with so many of these characters over the years, some of which inconsistently. His, his MJ has always been wildly inconsistent for me. You know, there are some storylines where MJ, I feel his MJ sings as a character, and then there are some that I feel like he just doesn't know how to write her. This, I kind of feel, was in the middle. I, I, I know you read the other Marvel books with more uh, vigor than I do, but, you know, MJ as Tony Stark's assistant still just makes very little sense to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. I, even reading Iron Man, I'm like, what is this character doing here? Yeah, so, you know, especially, like, seeing her pulling out, like, the Iron Man uh, gloves and using, like, repulsor rays and stuff like that, uh, repulsor beams, I, I just don't, it just makes no sense to me. But, you know, I, 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 do, I do appreciate MJ being able to kind of take care of herself, although uh, I, I don't need to have the character remind me of that every other panel as she does here. <laughs> I feel like, you know, it's kind of the lady doth protest too much um, in terms of just how independent and, and, and scrappy MJ is as an individual. But I, I, I liked the kind of callback to history between um, MJ and Brock and Venom when they show up. It, 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 it has some nice humor to it, but also, you know, especially since, their initial encounter was a centennial issue, so it's kind of a it's a nice callback for me, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I I like this chapter, you know. Uh, I guess the middle of the road for me. I think it's just very busy. Um, this chapter and, and none of it really rises above. There's no like standout moments in this chapter. I don't think. Um, I think Dan Slott's writing is a bit busy and Ramos's art I mean he's asked to shove so much onto every page and I feel like he can get a little lost in his own kind of loose designs but I think it's certainly better than a lot of the work he's been doing on champions for such a long time which I mm. felt really didn't utilize his strengths uh at all in the way that this book does so uh I think there's a couple really striking images here I particularly think of the one of MJ in the rain looking all kind of like sullen. Um, I, I love some of that stuff. And like you said, the symbiotes are beautiful to look at. Um, and we get the debut of a new Spider-Man costume here. Uh, I mean, I guess the return of the Venom symbiote on Spider-Man, but with web pits. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and those weird giant eyes that stick off the side of his head. I thought kind of a cool design and, and why you bring Ramos on a book like this is to come up with a cool new costume design. Definitely. Now, what did you think of just the mechanics of how Peter got the symbiote here? Because I, I didn't fully buy it. I kind of found it to be a little lame, to be honest, and contrived. I just don't know that I would believe that Brock would give up the symbiote like that. I mean, yeah, exactly. he finally got it back. And the biggest beef between him and Peter is often that the symbiote is, you know, it's tossing up between the two of them. I, it needed a beat where there was something personal on the line for Brock regarding what the Red Goblin is doing. You know, I think it's maybe it was that he hurt Flash in the previous issue. And so the symbiote feels some kind of need to avenge its former uh, master or that 
the Brock and the symbiote feel some way guilty for creating carnage back in the day. There needed to be some personal stake for him that allowed him to give up the um, the symbiote beyond like, hey, I know if you guys team up, you could beat him. It gets yeah. you halfway there, but not all the way there. Yeah, it just felt contrived to me because, well, I mean, like you're saying, I mean, there's just nothing within Brock's character from the, I mean, you know, he was introduced, uh, was it 1988? So 30 years ago. Um, there's nothing in the 30 years of the way this character has been written that would ever indicate, like you said, without some kind of really well laid out stakes involved, him just giving up his other so quickly, you know, like it just, it just makes very little sense to me. And, you know, yeah, the, the, the visuals are cool and, and Ramos does a great job with the costume and, yeah, Spider-Man's in the symbiote. That's always a good time, yada, yada. But this, this, this to me, is, like I said, this is one of those dings that I had a, ultimately had a hard time kind of divorcing myself from uh, when I had to come up with a final impression of the issue. Even, even as an anti-hero, I don't really believe that Brock would do this. And I still struggle with Venom as the anti-hero character. I much prefer him as a villain. Right. So like, this could also be my preferred take on venom is did not win out here and i i'm rank i'm you know like wrinkling up to that as well yeah now meanwhile the other half of this chapter and again it's kind of you know some good some bad is is like you said the the introduction of uh normie osborne fully formed as the carnage symbiote the goblin child or child I don't know how how you I, child right I don't know I'm trying uh, to <laughs> there's an e uh, at the end of child yeah attacking Aunt May um, and I you know like there were parts of this that were really silly and heightened um, but kind of worked for me um, like watching just just how devilish literally Normie is in these sections and it, it, it's it's so absurd on its on its on its face but it kind of needed to be absurd. And, and then like, I don't know, one of the jokes that worked best for me in this issue was, you know, when Aunt May is all clutching her pearls over what's going on. And she's like, I babysat for you. And he's like, you know, I gave you cookies and he's like, they had raisins in it. You should die. I laughed. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was just a really like, I'm like, yeah, that's probably what a, how old is Normie supposed to be in comic speak right now? Nine, 10. Yeah, I'd say like eight or nine is what I would imagine. Yeah. I feel like, you know, what that's what a troubled eight or nine year old who's been infected with a, a serial killing symbiote would probably say to an old woman, you know, I'm going to kill you because you put raisins in cookies like it worked. <laughs> and then also um, this scene, I feel what got a legitimate like, holy crap, I was not expecting this moment. Uh, we got the return of Superior Spider-Man, Doc Ock, whatever you want to call him. But, you know, uh, to me, was this a legitimate surprise moment for you? Well, I think it was a surprise because there's no clue as to where this character came from. He's just kind of hanging out around Aunt May's apartment in some way. Um, I, that's one of the things that I wish was a little more justified in this book is where the, I, I know that he's protective of her. I just don't know what he was doing hanging out there. Did he have some kind of inclination that the like Osborne was going on? Like, Does he know that this whole goblin thing is happening no that's i mean that is a good point it, there there is no true narrative explanation for it i mean they kind of try to explain it away as well i still have your memories but that still doesn't explain how he knows what's going on with norman osborne right now 
with all that said, I liked I liked having this moment for Otto. I feel I, I, I appreciated it's I mean, you're right. I mean, you had to figure slot wrapping up his run. I mean, they're the probably the only character I don't want to say is more important than Peter to Slot's run, but certainly as important to Peter for Slot's run is Otto Octavius, and you had to figure he'd be worked in somehow. Um, but like to me, this was the best use of him protecting Aunt May, sacrificing himself, and also kind of I feel squaring things off with Peter. Although yeah, there's a coda at the end of this issue that maybe leaves it open. Uh, but you know, if we're just going to judge strictly on this section, I feel like this is a good resolution to what you know a storyline that essentially built started building 200 issues earlier yeah once you go hydra you can be redeemed that's that's (laughs) what it's trying to say um you know i i like this too and i like the beat where it brings up the anna maria in front of the train thing where this time he was finally able to you know dive in front and and save uh someone sacrificing himself i I don't know how much I felt like that was earned necessarily because he was just a villain a few issues ago, like a really bad villain who was ready to kill innocent people. But, you know, I felt like it was a nice way to kind of end the character and um, and the coda notwithstanding. So, yeah, I'm with you. This was a a nice surprise. Um, What did you think about the other interloper in the scene? Jonah tries to take his plans to the next level and uses a leftover spider slayer from his, you know, I guess deceased wife, Marla. Um, yeah. What did you think about this random include? Again, I no idea that there was a leftover spider slayer, but I'm also not really surprised that there was. Yeah. I, I mean, this, this to me was just all about the visual comedy of Jonah lumbering into the room, uh, which is even called out as such by Otto at one point. Like, you know, I would have been fine if you didn't lumber into the room. So on that level, totally works. Don't know if it works anything more than just a visual joke, but, you know, I'm cool with it. It's a good, it's another good throwback. I mean, like, you know, these are the throwbacks I feel that, you know, Slot is good at. Um, you know, sometimes he goes too deep cut. Um, this, this, this is obviously not quite as deep cut, um, but it's something that could be appreciated as, as you know people who've read Spider-Man for years and years like we have all the same, right? It's kind of why you read Centennials, right? They're going to throw everything they've got into these issues. And, and also, it's a good way to keep Jonah active in the story, right? So we don't forget about how big of a player he is in this story. Absolutely. You want to move on to Chapter 3? Yeah. The, the end of Chapter 2 is just... Flash healing people in the hospital. Not really much going on there. Yeah, although Clash is having like a bad reaction, right? So that's kind of like a, a, a tip off that something else is going on here. Yeah, absolutely. So chapter three is family infighting, and we get the return of Giuseppe Comancoli as Norman and Normie race towards, uh, I guess, Alchemax headquarters, the former site of Osborne Industries. And Norman is going to broker a deal between, uh, I guess, Liz and himself to take back uh, Alchemax for himself and put his name back on the building. And that kind of breaks out into a brouhaha where Harry comes out of nowhere on a goblin glider and those weird humanitrons from a few issues back uh, rejoin us. 
And, um, you know, we get this kind of heartwarming scene where Harry reaffirms his love for Normie. Liz gets thrown out of a window and saved. And uh, we recreate the events of Amazing Spider-Man 122. Yes. And 121 to a degree. That's true. You're right. (laughs) He's throwing throwing blondes off of high places. I think he says quite literally in the text. Yeah. And again, like this is this is one of those like this section is uneven for me, although ultimately I I, I think it 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 lands where it needs to land. Certainly Harry Harry's moment with Normie is is a really well done moment. Just Harry's overall arc within this story, I feel, is makes sense. It's well done. Peter kind of saving the day. And that, I mean, I don't know if I fully buy that being what what flips Normie since, I mean, Normie certainly has seen Spider-Man save the day many times and still seems to kind of have a, you know, a hang up with Spider-Man for many reasons over the years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, um, you know, don't totally buy that. I mean, all the same, like, you know, we get a Mason Banks callback, which uh, is kind of funny for me because I feel like that might be that might rank among Dan Slott's worst reveals uh, from his run. <laughs> um, you know, I just appreciated the gall of bringing back Mason Banks. Yeah, I mean, like all that's missing was like Alpha showing up to be like, "Hey guys, remember me? <laughs> Poochie's back." <laughs> you thought I went back to my whole planet. <laughs> I mean, what what is more obscure, the Mason Banks or the Humanitrons? Well, yeah, true, fair enough. But Mason Mason Banks actually brought back kind of like like. I, I I don't want to say I had a repulsed reaction because that's that's way too strong. But I was just kind of like, ah, this guy, <laughs> <laughs> this guy that I don't really know anything about. He just right. he was a background character, pretty much. I, I guess, like I said, my besides this the the utter presence of Mason Banks. I mean, you know, like you, you have to have Osborne drama in a in a goblin story i know that's par for the course and and you know, but it's like this stuff with like the ownership of the company i i i mean it's just so there's just so many layers of of gobbledygook for me in terms of what the plan is and i'm just kind of like you know what like i could have just done without all of that nonsense and just cut right to the chase of harry trying to save his wife and son and having that, that resolution with them. I mean, I feel like the other stuff was just fluff. Uh, that didn't add anything that didn't make me love or hate, uh, these characters any more than I needed to. Um, and it just kind of, kind of bogged the story down in that, in those few pages. Uh, and, and, you know, Camo, uh, who, you know, kind of like Dan Slott, there's some, Stuff that Kamo does that's brilliant. Some that you know it's kind of less so. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if he was the best choice uh, on something that was as exposition heavy as this. I don't know what, if, what you thought of that. I loved this part of the book. It's my second favorite part of the book. I think. Okay. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Marcus Martin stuff is incredible, but much shorter than this. Um, I, I just found Harry's journey through this scene to be really quite beautiful. He's kind of reclaiming his legacy, both as a good goblin character, a good member of the Osborne family. He his his family is saved and, and a different character than Norman. And I thought that the company stuff was actually really great because I 
really wanted to know what Norman's final play in all this was because he really, for ever since he was first introduced, he's been about his company and taking control and being a power broker. And he gets caught up in all this family stuff and Spider-Man because they are attempted ways for him to either gain power or things that get in the way of the power he wants, uh, you know, like as his ultimate goal. So Spider-Man is like a thorn in his side in a lot of stories. In some stories, Spider-Man is the heir to the Goblin legacy because he's another path to power for Norman. And to me, just having it put all the way out there, they're like, no, wait, this really is just about him gaining power in this company. He is exactly that shallow. And and I found that to be really powerful, especially as we get into the Stuart Eminem section of this book. I uh, I thought in regards to like Osborne legacy stories and Osborne family stories, I don't think anything's going to come close to like say Spectacular 200 and the kind of specter of Norman that is over that scene. But in terms of directly confronting every part of the Osborne family, I thought this scene did a pretty darn good job of it. Okay, I mean, that's I, I get what you're saying. I, I Like I just said, I just felt some of the mechanics of, like, what Norman's ultimate play was, I was just like, eh. Like I said, I'd rather have just dived into the meat of it, um, which it ultimately does, which redeems it, but I could have done without the um, CEO drama. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not reading Spider-Man for Shark Tank, you know? I'm yeah. reading <laughs> <laughs> So then we got... Chapter four, the Goblin Triumphant, and this is this is imminent section, um, and I feel like for the most part, this is literally the heart of the book, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, I mean, it's this is it's I think the longest section, probably by page count. Maybe Ramos is, is the same amount. I'm not quite sure, um, but um, it just feels like where this is this is where all the stakes are laid out there. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's safe to say that everything in this part of the book works yeah i think so it's Um, like wow this is what we always wanted from from this team up you know dan slot and eminent and and all the promise of this story i think this chapter is a hundred percent delivers on everything i could have expected out of it yeah i mean if if this sec if this chapter was its own standalone comic it would be an a plus for me you know what i mean like it's it's that's that's how good it is for me. You know, we have we have the Red Goblin revealing his ultimate play, which is that he has, as you as we mentioned earlier in the show, he's injected all of Peter's friends and family with these little needles, and that um, he is going to activate them with a snap. So I guess yet again another another late addition. Although I guess you know they probably knew what was happening in Infinity War uh, before this went to press. I would imagine. <laughs> I mean, uh, leave it to Dan Slott to make a reference to someone else killing a bunch of people in an instant. Yes. And, you know, just, just to kind of really put the salt in the wounds, it's not even that he's going to snap his fingers and they're going to die instantly, um, that they're going to suffer, that this is going to, like, attack, like, nerves and, and organs and everything, and it would be slow, painful deaths for all of these people. Uh, and then when he snaps, uh, unlike Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet, uh, it does not work because good old, good old Flash Thompson is is there to save the day. 
I felt like this snap was missing a beat because he snaps and then the next panel is him reacting to it not working. I would have loved to have seen the people in the hospitals like looking like somewhere between pain and elation, you know, like where it's ambiguous or something. And then one of them smiles or something like that. And we reveal that the plan has backfired, but just turning the page and then finding out that it backfired really like, I know I just said everything here worked amazingly for me. This is the one beat that I was like, Oh, that's clever. Oh, it's over already. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. It could have used a little, little extra pause for tension, you know, like if this was Ditko, it probably would have been drawn out many more panels than this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you got a book this long, what's another page? Right. Well, pretty much, you know, because Flash has, in fact, beaten Norman to the punch and cured all of the friends. Norman, in turn, beats Flash to death. This seems like a pretty definitive death to me, Dan. Any question for you? No, I think he's dead. I mean, I yeah. don't even think I think it. We get a funeral in this issue. Right, right. But, you know, they're, 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 I mean, you know, you can't really say, well, there was no body or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like it's, I mean, hey, comics, you never know. But um, I think I think our good old um, former co-host, my former roommate uh, in my apartment, he, he's gone. Good old Flash. Yeah. Good old Eugene. And it's a beautiful moment. It's like I feel the funeral, stuff that happens at the funeral – ups the beauty element even more but this in itself is just just this is how you send out a character well even the lead up to it is incredible right because you've got the revelation that flash knows that it's pete inside the costume and that pete forgives him for being a, a a bully and you get this nice redemptive moment for flash there and then You've got this awesome fight between him and the Red Goblin where, like, he's literally melting the Carnage symbiote off of him to reveal the Goblin underneath. I thought that was such a neat visual. And then you've got that even cooler visual of something we've never seen Spider-Man do before in the Venom suit, as far as I can remember, is him, like, going full angry tongue Venom when he sees Flash getting zapped. And, uh, man... I mean, does anybody draw flames and venom and burning symbiote better than Stuart Eminem? And I would say probably not. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with you there. I Have mean, we you know, seen a moment where um, Spider-Man has like venomed out as venom? No, and and I think part of that is because, and I think we might have even talked about this in the past with um, Ron Friends. I mean, the the whole idea that the symbiote affects your, the personality of the wearer, I, I feel like that was always something that kind of got adapted later in other pop culture and then kind of became just the accepted norm for the character. And and Peter really has not had the symbiote since, what, the 80s, right? Yeah, I guess I mean, he's so. had it briefly, briefly, like here and there, like, a, like in the Michelinie run and stuff like that. But And Superior, know. but that was Otto. But that was Otto, yeah. So, I mean, it was a kind of a different game by that point. Um, so, yeah, we've never seen Peter purely Peter with the symbiote since Friends DeFalco. And, you know, they, they certainly pointed out that the symbiote had 
Peter do things he doesn't remember doing, like he's out in this in his sleep and, and things like that, but not so much that it affected his personality, made him angry, made him hulk out like this. You know, kind of, I guess, branching off where this mythology has taken the character, we finally got that moment. Right, and it, he immediately goes to saying, like, we'll kill you and eat your brains, you know, and uh, to me, it really sold just how angry Peter was, because, like, that's... Venom at his most crazy is when you get to eat your brains, Venom. Yeah, and and of course, Flash, you know, in one final act calms Peter down. Yeah. I think that's, you know, like, let's, you know, as if he hasn't done enough in this issue, you know, he saves Peter from himself, essentially. Yeah, I thought a beautiful moment. I'm glad that the final image is wordless and you get this great, you know, declaration from Flash declaring. Spider-Man, his hero, but not only his hero, but his friend. And uh, going to be honest, it got a little dusty in the room when I was reading this, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Although, I, again, I, there, there was still a part a little later where it got a little dustier for me. But this was definitely, <laughs> definitely a dusty moment. This was the first of bring on the tears for Dan Gavostin because the rest of this book was just kind of like one constant flow. Definitely. Um, but, you know, there's still more drama to be done here, including uh, Osborne then going off into Times Square and then just starting to kill indiscriminately just to spite Peter. Uh, great moment uh, because it just kind of truly encapsulates the evil and heinousness of both Osborne and the Carnage symbiote. It's also a good callback. I felt, I mean, maybe I'm overreading to the Moreland story and, you know, from the JMS and oh, Ramita. Totally, run, totally, you know, totally. Where, where, you know, he's trying to bring him out of hiding just by killing innocents um, because that's it. And, and, you know, I like how Osborne just kind of has this aha moment. Like, I don't even need to kill your friends. I'll just kill all these random strangers because you're that much of a loser. Although we can all kind of get behind him killing the people that dress up like Spider-Man. Fair enough. <laughs> although although gory i mean you know yeah. like, like you don't usually see that in a spider-man book no absolutely not um i love the way that eminent renders this kind of schlubby guy in the costume like <laughs> just the difference between how he draws that guy and the actual spider-man i found very comical definitely um but it also brings us to you know this moment where and to me this was one of dan slot's Best moments writing Spider-Man overcoming the odds um, because, you know, it, it, it. we have had so many of these stories over the years, whether it's Spider-Man under tons of steel or Spider-Man fighting the Juggernaut um, or Fire Lord or Venom, um, where, you know, Peter is completely over his head and he has to use his guile and his brain. And, you know, in this instance, the Gordian knot, it's not flame, it's not Sonics, it's it's playing to Osborne's ego, and I loved it. I loved I feel like this this is this is this was one of the best uh ways to kind of find find the hope spot, so to speak. This might be an all time top ten Spider Man defeating the odds moment for me. I, I mean, I would have to think long and hard about where it ranks, but I mean like I said, it certainly it certainly works great for me. Like this is this is, you know, and 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 not for nothing, not to again throw backhanded compliments at the the creator here, but I feel like this is 
the one of the times where Dan Slott really gives Peter credit as a hero in ways where I feel like he hasn't in the past, and that's kind of disappointed us. But he gives him that credit here, and I appreciated it. Yeah, me too. And I, I loved that by the end of this story, and one of my fears going into this was, like, if this is going to be one of the final Norman Osborn stories, I didn't want a symbiote Peter to defeat him, and I didn't want him to defeat the Red Goblin, right? The core of this is Spider-Man versus the Goblin, Peter versus Norman, and just the very act of those two pages back-to-back where they both relinquished their symbiotes to those flaming portraits of themselves. I mean, probably one of the most epic moments in all of Spider-Man comics. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, and during this fight, you know, Peter seems to get the upper hand and then immediately loses it because, again, there's just too much stuff going on and he's too concerned about what could be happening elsewhere, you know, like it's like, he can't just focus on his, his rage on beating the crap out of Norman because, you know, there's fire, there's flames, it's Times Square, what's going on? You know, I feel like it's a good way to kind of give Norman the temporary upper hand, which then also leads to this great sequence of kind of Peter pulling, you know, all of the inspiration, you know, it's, 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 you know, Dan Slot has kind of done the, 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 the floating heads of guilt and, and inspiration in the past, but, you know, and they usually work, this works even more, if that makes sense. This might be my favorite two pages from all of Slot's run. Yeah, I, 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 I always think back to kind of Astral Peter or, or Ghost Peter or whatever, kind of emerging from the wreckage uh, during Superior. I always like that a lot, but, but this stands up pretty well, too. I mean, in terms of the weepy moments, for me, this is where I was full-on crying. I, <laughs> Eminem's artwork, I mean, one of the things I love about this story and this particular issue and why I gave it such a high rating on the site is that every character in this story is given a moment of redemption or a, a, a moment of dignity where they are proven to be a stronger person by their association with Spider-Man. And this flips it around. It's like, how has Peter been moved by all the people in his life, right? And you start off with, like, Uncle Ben protecting Aunt May in an image that is really powerful. I, I don't know. Just looking at – I'm looking at it right now. I, 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 it gives me goosebumps. And, and, and the way that it's rendered by Eminem is just incredible because you move on to, like, Captain Stacy saving the boy – and then you've got all the like floating heads of guilt in the next one. And, and then you've got, just to round it out, Flash Thompson, you know, in his military garb, in his high school, you know, football gear, and as Agent Anti-Venom. I just feel like, I don't know, man. Stuart Eminem just powered it out of the house here. And, and Slot, it's minimal words. It's like the exact right thing. I, I, it broke me. I don't know. I just started crying. Well, there you go. I, I don't know if I cried during this, Dan, but uh, it, it was definitely a very powerful moment. And like I said, it was, it was, you know, just one of those times where Dan Slott, I feel fully appreciated the heroism of Peter and Spider-Man in a way that I don't feel he always has to our disappointment. Um, but I'm glad we were able to get it here. And then, of course, Osborne being Osborne, 
calls back the Carnage symbiote, but um, I guess it, th- th- this was unclear to me too. Um, so I, I get that the, the symbiote like kind of gets blown up, but like the rendering of it was not entirely clear to me. Did you have any issue kind of fully fully getting visually what happened to this thing? I think I understood it. It's more like I don't know how he had the time to rig up this explosion in the same time it took Norman to rebond with the symbiote. Like, it seems like it's almost there. And then Spider-Man grabs a bike and blasts it. You don't see it really getting like completely destroyed, but the image is very much him shoving a flaming vehicle right into it. Um, yeah. Uh, I kind of liked how it was unclear at first. Cause you got, you know, the goblin just looking insane sitting there and you're like, well, well, what happened? And then it's right. kind of revealed. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not it's not perfectly handled, but there is a certain level element of mystery that I found positive about it because I it made me still on the edge of my seat about what was going on. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, uh, I loved mostly that that Norman you know, in his desperation, he immediately goes back on his word, right? Like he's going to face Spider-Man. He doesn't need anyone and he's proven immediately wrong. He needs someone, right? And he's shouting, help me. He's, you know, he's exactly the kind of abusive hole that we all encounter in our lives, which is someone who just is so like, doesn't need anything until they need everything from everyone. Yeah. Indeed. And like you said, so so Osborne is kind of rendered brain dead of sorts here from experiencing the death of the symbiote, which is kind of a nice creepy scene of him in a him in a in a, it's Ravencroft, right? Good old, good old, we're not even in the uh, the whatchamacallit anymore, the uh, the raft, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We got this great moment with J. Jonah Jameson w- right. to talk about. Yes, so Jameson has a gun. JJJ's got a gun. Uh, Which gonna... set up the whole issue. Uh, you know, you got that gun sitting on the table the whole time. It made me think of um, Humberto Ramos, Paul Jenkins' story. Death in the Family. That's the one. And yeah, and and, and J- Jameson even says earlier in the in the comic, like, oh, it's not. It's going to take more than uh, a good guy with a gun. Or does he just say good guy? I forget what he's. I think he says good guy with a gun. I mean, I think he's pretty explicit Yeah, to save the day here. But, you know, I guess he figured now's his opportunity to be that good guy with a gun. And, and of course, Peter throws himself in front of the bullet, takes a bullet for Norman and Oz, and, and Jameson. And, again, this is, I, I just loved how this is rendered, the emotion captured uh, by Eminent here. Like, that, like that, just that face of total sh- shame on Jameson, right? Yeah, and then Peter is sure to get in because with great power, there must also come great responsibility, which I got chills. And, and I I think this is awesome. Like, this is almost like a new origin story for J. Jonah Jameson. Like, he was delivered this lesson in this moment that I think will really come to reshape the character completely. Yeah, and and it's uh, I mean that moment is also set up earlier when you know Peter kind of has his forgiveness scene with Jameson and was like, "You screwed up. You have to live with that, just like I have to live with my mistake." And 
Jameson's still trying to take the easy way out, and the fact that Peter throws himself in front of him, it's like, no, you cannot take the easy way out. You have to live that, you know, because it's 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 not even that he's punishing Jameson, but it's like, you know, at the same token, he just shoot Osborne dead when Osborne is like this is is an easy way out. It's a cheap way out. It's like it's not how it goes. Yeah. Even even though it's probably ill ill advised. Nobody yeah. is more deserving of a bullet than Norman Osborne. That's true. But I, I also like Peter making the claim, I'm just gonna web you up like you're with a note from your friendly neighborhood Spider Man because at the same token is there anything truly more humiliating for Norman Osborn than to get treated like a common criminal? Right, and it really brings you back to the first issue in his story where he, you know, webs up that crook and, and webs his shoes on him, right, and leaves the note. And we were wondering at the time, like, why include that scene in this comic, right? And it's to set this moment up that, you know, Spider-Man, he almost has a, he's a better relationship with that crook you know, this guy he can be kind of friendly with, even though he's webbing him up. Like, he thinks very little of of that in the same way he thinks very little of Norman. So we get this kind of middle chapter. Uh, yeah, I, I was jumping ahead. I'm sorry. Where we, we're we in Ravencroft with Norm, Norman, and he's just talking crazy. He thinks he's Cletus Cassidy. We, get, we find out that Normie is cured, sort of. and that the carnage symbiote lives on yes so that we can have another 30 years of carnage stories oh boy well 25 years shouldn't shouldn't jump the gun that much because you know if the century can't throw you into space and rip you in half and kill you then nothing will (laughs) what did you think of this beat of norman saying that he's cletus cassidy and that spider-man is norman like do you have any ideas about where something like this might go? Is is linking Norman to Cletus going to mean that he's forever linked to this Red Goblin persona? I don't know. I kind of feel like this is slot, not putting the toys back in the box, but just kind of being like, you know, I'm just going to leave this ambiguous and whoever follows, if they want to do an Osborne story, they can figure it out. I don't think there really is meant to be anything with it. If Spencer wants to do an Osborne story or whoever after that, you know, there's plenty of ways to go with it. You know, yeah. there's nothing, there's nothing definitive going on here. To me, this was the most disappointing uh, chapter of this book. It's something that I talked about in my review is that so much of this book seems so final for so many characters. Like they all get some kind of redemption or, their long simmering story, not even just of Dan Slott's run, but of like Spider-Man in general resolved. Like Harry Osborn here reasserts that he's an Osborn and he's reclaimed the name. And that's been a 50 year story resolved. Jonah and his relationship to Spider-Man resolved like all uh, Norman Osborn resolved and yet here we get these scenes that are like, well, there's more stories to come. And I know this isn't the end of Spider-Man, but like, if this was like an independent comic, which is very much not, this to me seems like a really fitting final chapter of Amazing Spider-Man. And yet the joy and terror of it all is that it keeps going. And I felt like, man, I really wish we could have lived in that finale a little bit instead of 
getting teases for the next thing. Yeah, that doesn't bother me. That's comics. No, um, I know, I know. It's comics, comics. But uh, part of me is like, man, like this is a fitting finale. Yes. For me, the surprise return of Marcos Martin for a funeral because no one does crushing emotional moments better than Marcos Martin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if they're going to – I thought I mean, to that point, each of these artists was kind of paired up with like what they've kind of become known for in the book. You've got Humberto Ramos doing – crazy symbiote stuff which he has done and we've got common coley doing like goblin glider fun which he was known for and you know you got Stuart eminent doing well he does everything well so it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't really matter much right. but marcos martin coming back for this funeral it's like okay what a perfect place to utilize this character or not character this artist rather yeah and then we have the 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 moment i feel the the closest I've had to an onion cutting moment in this comic, which is, you know, first Betty gives a eulogy for Flash, and and then Peter says a few words, and then Peter saying that he was always Flash's number one fan, and and that that line got me good, Dan. So you know, I liked all the stuff about bullying, how all bullies come from a. Yeah, I mean that that I mean that that I felt had a deeper resonance beyond the world of Spider-Man, but I feel in terms of the, the, the poetry of, you know, obviously Flash always being Spider-Man's number one fan, you know, Peter acknowledging that he was Flash's number one fan. I, I just felt that was really beautifully crafted and um, really well done. I mean, it's, 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 it's sometimes comics can be Shakespeare. This, this, this works here. Yeah, I totally agree. This was uh, uh, the room got dusty. Number three, and embarrassingly enough, I'm on a plane when I read this issue, and I'm just <laughs> weeping on a plane. It was uh, the people next to me probably thought I was an insane person. Was your wife with you, or no? It was just me and two strangers. Oh, oh that's even worse. I was just I, I, middle seating it and crying. I'm sure if uh, holding a comic book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just the oh tears dripping onto the pages. And then, did, I, did I paint enough of a picture there for you, Mark? There you go. And Jameson sends Spider-Man on his way when there's a police siren, which you know I feel is kind of like a fun way to deal with the unresolved issues between the two characters. Like, oh, keep going. But it, it truly does feel like there's a new leaf here, right? I mean, like, you know, we're not going to get psyched out again by the Jameson-Peter Parker dance, right? No, I can't wait to see what this new relationship is like. In many ways, it seems like it might you know, pay off that ultimate Spider-Man relationship we never really got to see. Like, Jameson as Spider-Man's kind of, like, secret keeper and, and and lead supporter and someone who can truly understand what it means to be Spider-Man now that he's gone through a similar moment of guilt and mistake. I, I thought, I can't wait to see where Jameson goes with this. Like, I don't want him to get superpowers, but in a way it seems like we almost might be ready for a superpowered Jameson of some kind. Well, there you go. Or like, or, I mean, Oracle Jameson can work, though. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good place for him. And, you know, here we go. 50 more years of some new Jameson thing. There you go. And then there's this one last coda where Otto is revealed as Elliot Tolliver working for Max Modell again. And the beat goes on, Dan. 
The beat goes on. I mean, you know, someone was saying, does this mean that Slot might write a superior book? I don't know. Slot's doing Iron Man and Fantastic Four, and the guy can barely keep two issues of Spider-Man going a month. I don't know how you can expect any more from him right now. Yeah, I think I think this is it. But, um, you know, that character is set up to exist. I don't know if this means that he's a good guy, like doing good things for Horizon, or we're starting this whole chain all over again that Otto is going to be up to his old nefarious deeds but I don't know it it seems like there's something heroic about it like him giving up his name and and becoming a new man uh I think Marvel will probably be set on capitalizing on this with a B series of some kind you know that's what it seems like to me is like oh where where was the announcement about a superior Spider-Man series it's true I mean you know, I have to imagine, well, we, we're not going to have a Miles book. We're not going to have a Gwen book. I, I, I cannot imagine we're going to have a Ben Riley book much longer. I don't know how much life Spider-Man Deadpool has in it. So, you know, we need to, we need to merchandise, Dan. I'm curious if they really let Nick Spencer's book um, kind of redefine Spider-Man and the B titles along with it. I mean, I feel like Spectacular Spider-Man is going to go on for a while. But, I mean, all these other books seem like they're coming to an end. I'm sure we'll get new miles in the fall. We also don't really know, is Nick Spencer's book bi-monthly? I, I can't imagine that, that Otley will be able to produce a book that quickly, as he didn't do it with Invincible. Uh, so, whether there's a rotating team of artists or not, like, I, I'm curious what the broader lineup is, and if Superior has a place in it. It certainly seems like it would. I mean... I mean, at the same token, there's a reason why Amazing has been, at the minimum, a bi-monthly book now for a while. You know what I mean? Like, it, the, the sales dictate that it can be. You know what I mean? Like, you can... I know that the sales aren't what they used to be, but, you know, the fact of the matter is it's still one of Marvel's top books, and I'd be shocked if they didn't try and push as much content out as possible. Yeah, that's entirely true. So, um... A big centennial, number 800. Do we want to give this a review score? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm going to give it a B plus. And I'm going to give it a flat A. I've never cried three times reading any comic. <laughs> uh, and if you can get that kind of emotion out of me, uh, you know, even if there's uneven parts, the Stuart Eminem, Marcos Martin stuff, you know, it might be some of my favorite 20 pages of Spider-Man comics. And that's hard for me to uh, to overlook. Well, Dan, one of the questions we got from one of our listeners was they were asking us, where does this stack up against slots other centennials? I will do one better. Uh, you know, I always love complete thorough lists. Uh, the centennial list, uh, I think the last time we did this was uh, our 100th episode. Want me to give my list first, you give yours, or how do you want to do this? That works for me, yeah. We're about 100 episodes later, so, you know, uh, let's, let's see how our lists have changed, I guess. All right, well, we'll, we'll I'll start bottom up. So, you know, my, my eighth favorite centennial is Amazing Spider-Man number 200, a.k.a. The Return of the Burglar. Uh, we have discussed over the years my issues with that. Coming up behind that is Amazing Spider-Man number 600, which is the first of the slot centennials. It's a fun story, but... It, you know, and I know it ties into Superior, but at the end of the day, I don't know. It just kind of feels very unordinary for me. Uh, after that is Amazing Spider-Man number 100, a.k.a. the beginning of the Six Arms saga. I don't know 
it just feels like a fun coda the Stan Lee run, but I understand why some people don't love it. Next is Amazing Spider-Man number 500. Don't know why I don't love this more, but I don't know. I just kind of, I always feel like JMS and JRJR were the very, very best at the very, very beginning, and kind of the quality went down following that. Then I have 800 here as the um, my fourth favorite, immediately followed by 700. Although to me, I think it's going to be one of those, depending on the time of day, could be interchangeable. I think as of right now, I still find 700 to be more epic than this. I also never had, 700 has the unique experience that I think has only been captured by my viewing of Infinity War of literally giving me a panic attack on every page. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I've never been that stressed reading a comic before and that says something. So I feel like I have to give that the edge for that reason alone. Uh, and then coming in at number two is amazing Spider-Man number 400, uh, the tombstone cover, the worst cover in the history of centennials, but probably the most beautifully written story, despite the fact that Aunt May was later revealed to be a body double with, you know, nano bombs in her brain. Uh, Let's forget that and just acknowledge that if you're going to kill a long-term character without superpowers, certainly what they did with Flash was great, but Aunt May, I, to me, this is, this is always the, the um, standard bearer and how you kill a character. And then number one for the Centennials for me is Amazing Spider-Man number, number 300. Uh, I think anybody who knows me from Chasing Amazing or this show knows that this comic is just kind of the nostalgic uh, pinnacle for me. Uh, and it's just never going to be probably beat by anything. So there you go. How about you, Dan? Yeah, my list is, I don't know if it's that different from yours, um, but we'll start at the bottom. Uh, We both share our least favorite one, which is Amazing Spider-Man 200, The Return of the Burglar. And his ultimate demise. Um, (laughs) The Then next up for me is issue 100, which, like, I don't really blame it because... I don't really think Centennials were really a thing at this point, and so they didn't really go all out on this. It's the first part of a two-part story. I think if we were to do it today, that would be one story altogether. I think the highlight of this issue is that Spider-Man tries to give up being Spider-Man, and that's kind of the emotional crux of it, but we already kind of got that beat several times before, so it doesn't hit as hard as I think it could have. Um, then next up for me is number 600, which, like you said, it's just kind of a fun story. It's got the Aunt May wedding, which seems less momentous now that that didn't last terribly long. No. But uh, I think that issue is really fun, and it's – I don't know. That's tough because it's just fun. It's more fun than 100 or 200, I think. Mm. Then next up, the top five for me, really, it's like any day of the week, any one of these could be my number one. Like, they're all just great comics. Um, at least I think so. Uh, so next up for me is number 400, The Death of Aunt May. Um, I really like this issue a lot. It's beautiful and definitely gets you crying. But I'm not as attached to the Clone Saga eras as others, so this one doesn't really quite land nostalgically for me as much as some of these others do like 500 is my next one and jms really brought me back on to the spider-man book and that book kind of has a place in my heart i love the kind of spider-man revisiting his past and future and making the decision on 
like whether to save his life by preventing being Spider-Man or not. And the Uncle Ben reunion with John Romita Sr.'s art. I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, heart in that book. And and like any good centennial, it's asking questions about like, what is Spider-Man? And why does he do what he does? Et cetera, et cetera. Then, boy, Mark, this is a toss-up because I'm like you. Issue 700 is... I think better than issue 800 in its, its construction and the I'll never forget the experience of the day after Christmas reading this and like tearing all my remaining hair out while reading it with every page turn and just sitting in horror waiting to find out how it would end. Um, and I don't know if that emotion, like if I value fear as much as I value the kind of like incredible spirit that I was filled with reading issue 800. It just, it's everything that Spider-Man is to me in issue 800. And I, I don't know. It's it, again, it's a toss up. So I'm going to say that 800 is my third favorite and 700 is my second favorite. But I mean, that's just, I don't know, Mark. Anyway, I don't want to justify it anymore. I love both of those books. And then like you, issue 300 is an incredible nostalgia play, but I mean, is there anything better than Venom? Uh, that origin story is amazing, and watching those two duke it out is, I don't know, it it's, might be shallow Spider-Man fun, but, I mean, isn't it the best shallow Spider-Man fun? Yeah, and it's also, I know his art means less to you than it does to me, but it's just full-on McFarlane, um, which, again, is another nostalgic play for me. I mean, this is, you know... I, as I always like to say, this is the comic that made me love comics. You know, like it, comics felt cool reading this comic. Yeah, and the the final page, the return of the red and blues. I mean, epic, epic, totally epic. Anything else from our listeners we want to address before we close out? Uh, well, I wanted to uh, talk about what variants you picked up because I think that the regular cover for this. I know we've been. Given Alex Ross a lot of flack, I think the regular cover for this book is really rad. But there were a lot of really cool variants. Any ones that you picked up that you wanted to kind of pay attention to? Well, I mean, I think, and we've probably discussed about this either on Twitter or even on the show. I mean, the I, I like that we brought Ramita Senior back, although I mean, it's really kind of you know, it's an image of Peter and Gwen, and Gwen per your prediction did not factor into this comic in any way. I'm still uh, holding out hope for 801. There you go. The Ron Friends one, I mean, you know, Ron, we love you, Ron, friend of the show. He is still just on top of his game with this one. I got those day of. I pre-ordered a couple that have not arrived yet, um, including the Mobius one, which I think is a pretty cool one, although it doesn't really have anything to do with the story. Bagley, I like the Bagley one. It kind of actually feel, it feels more ultimate than it does uh, <laughs> amazing, yeah, uh, in yeah. terms of where his art is. I picked up the, the Ramos interconnecting one. And then um, I believe I also uh, – there's a Terry Dodson one too, right? Yeah. I believe I grabbed that one just because it's Terry Dodson, although sometimes his art rubs me the wrong way. And but. I heard you bought the Dicko one. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I, I ended up having the Friends and Ramita ones in my, my subscription box at my local comic book shop. And I had I didn't even ask for them because I was just going to pre-order those two with the rest of the ones that I was going to pre-order. And you know I I I thanked the person. I said, "Oh wow!" I said, "That's that's great service." That I didn't even have to ask for these. And he's like, 
He's like, well, you didn't get the the really good variants, did you? I said, no. And he's like, like, did you get this one? And like, it's like it was literally under lock and key. But they know I'm like the Spider-Man guy in the store, so they showed it to me, and it was the Steve Ditko variant one. They were selling it for four hundred thirty dollars, and I think I would have gotten fifteen percent knocked off because I'm a subscriber. Which, looking on eBay, probably probably should have just done it, Dan. But then I probably would have also gotten a divorce. Because uh, I don't know if I can if I can just drop over four hundred dollars in a comic, but uh, you know there's another Dicko variant out there. I'm sure we'll be selling on eBay for a thousand bucks or more in a matter of days. <laughs> yeah, right. No kidding. Um, I picked up all the ones that you mentioned. I mean, I didn't get Mobius and I didn't get the Terry Dodson, both because the rule I made for myself is it has to be either one of my favorite Spider-Man artists. Or like a cool cover tied in with the story, and both of those felt like a bit of an inventory story. Um, you know, like the Paulo Rivera cover. You know, I love Paulo Rivera, but that cover was so boring. It had the eight hundred in the windows, but you know, if you're if it's going to be tied to this, I felt like, oh, give me some some covers with the Red Goblin or or Peter in the Venom suit or something that. And I felt like all the ones I bought at least adhered to that kind of idea. And I, I think, you know, $10 a pop, you know, they, they got to be something really neat. And for my money, like the Ron Friends one is the one that delivers the most on it. Yeah, I would agree with that. There also appears to be, and I forget who the artist was on this, but I've seen some other people uh, brandishing it. It looks like it's kind of a play on an Amazing Spider-Man number 39 uh, I guess oh that's that's John Cassidy who did that one. I've not seen that one, but um, I almost kind of, bought that one. I just didn't love the art on it. No, the art's not great, but it's kind of a fun play on the image at least. Then there's the one that's I think it's like Amazing Spider-Man uh, two thirty nine, where the Hobgoblin yeah. is tearing the suit in half. Uh, th- I saw that one too, but that was like a hundred bucks in my store. Yeah. And I guess there's a Gabrielle Delato one that a lot of people are high on. But again, it doesn't – I don't know what says 800 about that one. Yeah, yeah. That was my rule. So I thought at least worth addressing. And the, and the Delato one I think would have cost me 50 so Yeah, I was like, that was eh, pricey yeah. too. I was like, no thanks. <laughs> All the ones I got were just cover price, which was expensive enough. Right. Yeah. I mean the Dicko one is kind of cool, but – you know, again, four hundred bucks. So <laughs> I was just, I was just glad about after spending all this money on these comics, like fifty bucks on one comic, essentially, that I liked the story as much as I did. You know, like I can, I can look at these books and go, these covers are cool, but I also really dig the story on the inside. It's true. I bought a bunch of Superior Thirty One variants and. We both decidedly did not like that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's the question, Mark. If they start doing what they did with Amazing Spider-Man 700 and doing the second printings with the cool, like, Centennial remake covers, is that something you'll think about doing again? Well, I got to see how they do it. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I'm on the fence on that one. I mean, it it worked the first time for... Because you have Otto instead of Peter, but I mean, what are you really going to do this time? You know, yeah, like, I don't know. I'm sure they'll come up with something cool, Mark. I mean, they always seem to. That's true. Woof. Well, Mark, that is one of our longest reviews ever. Uh, <laughs> we feel like forever ago that we recorded this thing. 
Yeah, I mean, that issue came out, what, end of May? June? I don't even remember anymore. I think it was June. Okay, well, a lot has changed since June, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Do you want to go on to the next one? Yeah, why don't we uh, now get to the grand finale of the Dan Slot run, Amazing Spider-Man number 801. Today we're here to talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 801, and that is Dan Slott's final issue, uh, which will be a bittersweet one for many. I'm sure a point of joy for a, 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 a segment of the internet that's quite angry. Uh, but you know, Mark, for us, like our show was started because of Dan Slott. You know, we continued it for a long time because of how much we loved those comics. For me, it's bittersweet to see him leaving the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I wrote about this in uh, the, the review for Amazing Spider-Man number 801 on uh, on a, our, our website, Dan, on SuperiorSpiretalk.com. And um, frankly, um, I don't know what my life as a blogger and as a Spider-Man person in podcast form or whatever – what where where I would have been without Dan Slott's work, and even when it it kind of drove me nuts, and I you know at times thought that this just wasn't for me anymore, and you know I still kept coming back to the fact of well you know but there was something about this guy that kind of drove me to want to talk about Spider-Man comics in a very public way, whereas prior to that it was a very personal thing that I kind of you know, shared on a need to know basis. You know, I wasn't like broadcasting from the rooftops of my office building that I was this big Spider-Man person, you know? So <laughs> you came out of the closet. I guess the dance so. lot era. Yeah. Pretty much. And, you know, obviously my collection and the older comics has always been kind of a key part of who I talk, you know, how I relate to Spider-Man, but no, I mean like, no one dies was the first issue I, I wrote about on chase an amazing blog and first new issue I wrote about, I should say it's, it's like you say, there's a bittersweetness to it. And I, I kind of was, you know, especially when it became readily apparent that 801 was not going to be related to the, the red goblin story. It was just going to kind of be its own coda. I was I was very curious about what that was going to be, um, and I I was I don't want to say pleasantly surprised, but like this was not what I was expecting, and I really appreciated it for all of its self awareness, if that makes sense. That's funny because this is exactly what I was expecting—a kind of like sweet, you know, uh, Marco Smart. Martin story that's similar to like no one dies where it's a little bit dreamy and um, loose with time and, and and very art heavy Um, the cover with all the people making up Spider-Man. It seemed clear to me that this story itself was going to be 
you know, uh, about all the people that Spider-Man affects day to day. And that's exactly what we got. I'm not disappointed in that for a second. But I thought, well, you know, it's a final issue. 800 was going to be the plot-heavy stuff. And this would be like a sweet coda on Dan Slott's work. And I was actually surprised by some of the ways that it reflected his work and didn't reflect his long run. There's like a lot, some things that aren't mentioned that I figured would go mentioned and some things that are, that cast a weird light on his run that we'll talk about. But I think overall, this was a, like you said, very self-aware. I think that's the most interesting thing about this comic is like the statement it's trying to make, not even about Spider-Man, but about like collecting Spider-Man comics or reading Spider-Man comics in general. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, Dan. Context really, really matters with comics sometimes. And, like, you know, I was thinking about how, <laughs> you know, if this was, if this story was like a backup in an annual that came out two years ago, I probably would have dismissed it as just kind of, you know, inventory schlock. Yet, I feel it's immensely more powerful and interesting uh in the context that this is dan slot's farewell you know that this is this is the story he chose to tell does that make sense do you see what i'm saying with that i mean like it's it's a well done story i think regardless of the context but you know we've kind of touched on this stuff numerous times in the past there's not there's not a ton of new ground here in any way i mean it's just it's just that lens of this being how this guy is choosing to say goodbye to this ca- his time on this with this character that makes it more unique to me. Yeah, um, there's a lot of things like I I, I want to lump something like this in. It's not interesting you mentioned backup stories. I want to lump this in with like a lot of the like kid who collects Spider Man type of stories or like a lot of uh, Paul Jenkins run. You know where it's just kind of like ephemeral. Spider-Man story, like the kind of like Uncle Ben and the Mets kind uh, kind of story, where it's Spider-Man is so t- and, and the the plot machinations of Spider-Man are so they feel like they're in a very different realm than than this thing, you know. Like this is a, it's more of a statement, you know, piece. And Spider-Man himself, like I was very curious about how Spider-Man was portrayed in this issue. It's it's kind of like aloof. And not even, like, aware that he's, like, a protagonist in someone's sto- uh, story. And that's so interesting to me because uh, it really feels like a, an author stepping back from Spider-Man and, and giving him, handing him off to someone else. Because even Spider-Man isn't really, like, the lead focus of this issue. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think even... Slot himself has said this in interviews over the years, not necessarily related to him leaving Spider-Man because he kind of always made it sound like he would never leave Spider-Man. But, you know, that this the idea of like putting putting the toys back in the toy box at the end. And and this is like this is very meta in how it approaches that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's it's just like. There's the, the characters are aloof, I think, because in a lot of ways the, the the writer is being aloof in a way. Like he's kind of, I mean, you know, here here is this this person who who's 
impact on Spider-Man, I mean, what he's most, what Dan Slott is best known for is kind of the, the sledgehammer that he's taken to the character in over the last 10 years. I mean, there's not much that's subtle about Dan Slott's work on Spider-Man or any of his work, but specifically his Spider-Man work, you know, like he's kind of, I think he's thrived on not being subtle. He enjoys it. He embraces it. And I think that's what's so striking because he's written quiet stories in the past, but nothing ever this kind of subtle and, and like totally lacking any bombast whatsoever. Yeah. And in a weird way, like, I mean, we don't get Peter Parker or any of that stuff, but in a weird way, Spider-Man seems reverted back to his most essential form in this book. We're not getting big time where Peter is, you know, got some new hook, you know, or superior where it's Otto or Peter Parker as the head of a company. There's no hook here. There's no spin. And it's like one of the few times that Dan Slott has actually been allowed to do just essential Spider-Man. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, kind of sticking with the meta-textual elements here. I mean, you know, one of Dan Slott's big comebacks whenever someone kind of criticized his work was always like, well, you know, if you want to read that Spider-Man, go into your long box and pull out that Spider-Man. You know what I mean? Like, And this comic basically speaks to that point. It's this idea that Spider-Man is always there and regardless of who's writing him and who, you know, who's, who's pulling the strings, it doesn't matter. Like there, there is a, a, a archive of this mythology that is always going to be there. Um, no matter what, no matter what the story is, no matter what the consequences are, no matter what's going on in the real world, no matter, you know, it's that 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 mythology will always exist in all of these issues and all of these back issues. I mean, they don't obviously mention back issues, but you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the overarching theme of this story is that Spider-Man is eternal and it's, these stories are eternal. It's funny because reading this, I thought of your blog and this is like <laughs> a comic directly aimed at your blog, which is like, you know, the the A story of this is about a man who – you know, had an encounter with Spider-Man and, you know, who allowed him to go and see his son, or not son, his father, before he passed away. And for me, the weakest part of the story is that element. Like, I, I didn't really feel like the element about saving that moment was incredibly powerful. But for me, the most powerful moment of, of the book is this kind of aging scene where we see this man's life in segments and, you know, kind of like moments of highlights from his life. And to me, it just reminded me of, of your blog, which is the idea that these issues are of Spider-Man are remembered by what was surrounding them in your life, you know? And I think it's the appeal of your writing was, you know, reading about you know, what was going on with Mark at any given point in time. And not to make this final issue of Dan Slott's book about you, but like, uh, I like that. (laughs) Um, but like, it's basically metatextually what it's about is like, everybody reads these comics and, you know, Spider-Man is there no matter what. It's like a, 
a, a timeless, he will always be there, and it's a constant you can rely on in your life. You know, he is, and, and he means something different to everybody, right? You know, so like, take it, take each issue on its own and enjoy what you can get out of it and, and think about how you've grown through the time of being with Spider-Man. I don't know. I, I, at least that's what I took away from it. You know, it's 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 funny. I, I <laughs> even in writing a very chasing amazing esque review of this issue for your site, <laughs> our site, but your site, I didn't quite make that connection until you just said it. And there's a lot. I I don't I don't think you're wrong. Again, not making this about me, but I mean, you know, one of the things that. I always kind of held true on Chasing Amazing and, and why I took such joy in doing that and why I hoped others like to read it was, you know, like I viewed not like every every comic that I owned, I viewed had a story to it. You know, like that was like like my collection. I, I always like to say my collection is my collection. No one has my collection. You might have all the same comics that I have but you don't have the story and how those comics came together the way I do you know what I mean like it's 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 through those experiences uh that you know like what I own is wholly unique and I feel you know now that you said it now I'm saying and it's like oh yeah that's and that is kind of the point of Spider-Man here it's that you know the the line and I know like this might run counter to some other things that Dan Slott has talked about over the years, but the, he saves a world every single day. I mean, it's, there's a lot underneath the surface of that statement. You know, it's like whose world, you know, like it's, 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 it's completely subjective in terms of what that actually means and what's being saved and, and what is entailed by a world, you know what I mean? And, and I, I think that's kind of, Going back to what I was talking about with with issues of you know a comic book collection, it's it's you know like it's a it's a subjective thing. It's a very personalized thing um, how how we view these things. And uh, I, I really appreciated how Dan Slott used this as an opportunity to to do that because I don't feel he's ever done that before on this comic. Like he's always just kind of been more broad and big and the long game and all that. Like he never just kind of took the step back and been like, you know, there are X thousand million, whatever of you who love Spider-Man out there. You're all getting something different from it. Yeah. And I think that's reflected in the, in, in the books in, in many ways. So like the first page of this story, we get the recap of Amazing Fantasy 15 in nine panels, which I think the only two people on Earth that could pull that off with this level of power would probably be Steve Dicko and Marcos Martin. Um, <laughs> well, well, I mean, it is kind of a riff on, I don't know if you've ever read the uh, Grant Morrison, Frank Quitely, All-Star Superman. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely riffing on that too. But Yeah. Uh, Frank Quitely yeah. isn't, I would say, is in that ballpark. Um, I, would, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like that, there's something really interesting about that sequence is that it's all done from the first person perspective of Peter, right? We're seeing, we're reading the comic as if we 
are Peter. And that's a deliberate choice, you know, um, because, you know, this, this comic takes multiple viewpoints. We start off as Peter, then Spider-Man kind of becomes like an interloper in someone else's story. And then towards the end, you know, we become like halfway through, but we become this kind of detached reader, like the watcher where we're watching this guy's life play out. But for me, like by making it so personal in the opening moments, the comic establishes this weird connection with its reader. And in the second half, the second half of this comic to me is directly pitched at the reader. You know, when it's saying things like Spider-Man saves a world every day, it's saying it saves a reader's world every day. You know, the final image of Spider-Man swinging off with the briefcase, you know, where he says, I'll always be here for you. You know, I mean, Spider-Man's not saying that, but like, that the main character of the story is saying that, but what it really means is Spider-Man will be there for you, the reader. It, it is. It's not even loosely playing with, you know, who its audience is. It, it to me, it seems directly pitched at the person reading the book. Right. I think that's fair. And again, these are just not. This is why I say I I was a little surprised by it because even even if you were expecting kind of a grand summary of what it is to be spider-man like these are you know this is this is some really deep peeling back the onion kind of stuff here about our relationships to fictional characters and the stories that they tell you know like this is this is some really you know like this is some philosophical stuff (laughs) in in the most unelegant way to say it (laughs) This is some this is some heavy stuff, Dan. <laughs> it, it almost makes me want to incorporate like your and I lives into the podcast more. I mean, like it's not really a desire of mine, but like in a way, you and I are like time capsuling, you know, not only our opinions on these comics, you know, but like as we're going to grow over the years doing this show. You know what I mean? Like, I would love for like our show to be held in the same regard. I mean, maybe it's, it's not like amazing Spider-Man, but like people listen to us and over the years, like how are they changing? How is our audience changing while listening to us as a constant alongside this book? You know what I mean? In a way it's a time capsule as well. Uh, and an interesting one. And I think again, back to your blog, that was the appeal of that. It's like, you know, you could go to your archives and click on an issue and go like, well, what what was Mark's life like at that point in time? Um, <laughs> if you make it a little bit more personal. And and we let our personalities show a little bit on the show. I mean, obviously in who we are, but it's not a catalog of what we're doing at any given time. But, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder about that. You know, uh, uh, Spider-Man is very personal for us. Definitely. Well, back back to this comic, just so we don't get totally Proustian with our tangents sure. here. Sure, yeah, yeah. This uh, is a review, everybody. Yeah, right. Um, so, obviously, I mean, you mentioned kind of Marcos Martin's unique talent here, uh, you know, with the, in terms of the, the origin page uh, from Amazing Fantasy 15. But, I mean, no surprise here. The, the artwork throughout is, is just stunning. I mean, you know... You know, those early sequences uh, where we're kind of getting this flashback story. I mean, obviously, I, I feel like this is like 
this is Marcos Martin channeling Dicko the only way he really can, probably better than any other Spider-Man artist who's worked on the book, uh, just in terms of the 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 figures and and the movements and just kind of that weird. I mean, you mentioned detachment and kind of what as the reader looking at the story, but like I feel like that was kind of essential to Ditko Spider-Man too. Is that kind of you know, we like to say Spider-Man's an everyman, but I think Ditko would actually argue that. Like, he wanted people to feel kind of, ooh, about Spider-Man. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that was that was the point. Uh, and I, I, you kind of get that here, even though there's this kind of warmness to this idea of he'll always be there. But the way the the way Martin's figure moves and, and is rendered, and you know, it's it's a little creepy and off-putting. Well, you get that sentiment expressed by the daughter character in this where she basically says, you know, uh, why did it have to be Spider-Man? If I saw a superhero, I want to see Black Panther or Captain America, you know, and uh, and her father rebuffs her, you know, on this. And uh, I don't know if it's intended to be a swipe at, like, slots critics, you know, but in a way it's like, you know what, like, you might have wanted something different. But, like, this is what you got, and, um, you know, it, it will be valuable to, you know, everybody in a different way. And I, I like that. I, back to Marcos Martin, though, like, that – the opening, the title page where you get Spider-Man bursting through the glass and uh, you've got all the editor's names on the Coke cans, which I thought was really clever. <laughs> um, I thought that panel with – it's kind of homage to the cover of – Amazing Fantasy 15 was one of the most stunning Spider-Man splashes I've seen in a long time. Um, just the detail on it and the just the all, each shard of glass being rendered. I mean, talk about riches in the art department on this book in the past few months. I mean, holy moly. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they, 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 they didn't spare anything for, for Dan Slott's final few issues. And then, of course, you know, further in, we got these other, like, double-page spreads. Um, that are just, it's just the, the artwork is just brilliant throughout. I mean, there's just nothing, nothing left on the cutting room floor, so to speak, that that you would think would have worked better. <laughs> Did you read this issue any differently? Because we're coming to this review a little bit late because of my honeymoon. But did you read this issue any differently in the wake of Dicko's death? No, because you know, again, I I, I kind of just respected the fact that this. This was done before that, and there are certainly others who have contributed to the Spider-Man mythos over the years that are no longer with us, that, you know, you can make a case that, you know, even though they're gone, their stories aren't, and they're, they're eternal, you know what I mean? Like, you, 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 you are one of the privileged few to write Spider-Man, you are part of the mythology forever, which is something I think Dan Slott would, you know... If you asked him point blank, he would always, he would agree with you know, and that might be kind of him both agreeing with it, but also maybe thumbing his nose at his critics a bit too. Like I am, I am part of this mythology now, whether you like it or not. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's what it is. Yeah. Uh, so I I didn't really get necessarily a, a, a different kind of chill or 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 sentiment from it in the context of, of Dicko's passing. Because I feel like again, it's 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 even bigger than that. I mean, you know, you can make the case 
I mean, obviously Stan Lee is still physically with us, but he just seems so removed from everything right now. I mean, like that kind of like cast a weird cloud on this issue in a lot of ways for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I feel that. I guess for me, it's just seeing artwork that was so invoking Ditko that the last issue of Spider-Man that we have to read at this current moment in time is such a Ditko homage, like, which is rare in modern Spider-Man comics. You know, I, I rereading it, found it even more powerful um, because it is kind of uh, uh, a unique specimen in, in that very nature. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a fair point. What else do we want to say about this? Because it, it's it's funny in its own way. It says a lot, and then it doesn't say a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I found it interesting that like there were a lot like large elements of Dan Slott's run that kind of didn't get mentioned in the past two issues as he's closing it off. You know, like there's no, there was no real reappearance of Horizon or. Anna Maria, and I don't think they would fit into this story in any way. But, like, thematically, I'm thinking about, like, you know, ideas that Dan Slott has been pushing. And in this issue, there's, like, that big push to say, like, he saves a world every single day. It's not about the scope of how large, like, if he's actually saving the whole world. And I thought that was an interesting statement to make from a guy who just finished a run wherein... Peter saved the world, you know, like every issue. Um, right. Like, it just seemed like a strange sentiment to express. I mean, I agree with it. You know, like Spider-Man, the whole point is that he saves a few people here and there, and and that's that matters. It, it just seemed to work kind of against the, the kind of point that Dan Slott seemed to be making during Volume 4, or maybe he was trying to make this point but didn't really get it fully across that it didn't need to be a big scale thing. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. I, I, but like in retrospect, I don't know how appropriate it would have been to kind of, because again, like that was something that, you know, it's, it's a part of the mythology now, no question as, as kind of the, is the theme of this whole issue. But at the same token, like when you look at the broader scope of who Spider-Man is, it's, it's really just a small percentage of it. So, like, to kind of, I don't know, make that be the driving thematic element, like what we kind of gleaned from the last couple of years, I don't know how appropriate that would have been. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being selective in what I want to see in a comic like this. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I, I just thought it was an interesting pairing in that, like, we ju- literally just finished that story. And then there's a character complaining that he's not a worldwide hero. Uh, right. And it's like, well, he kind of was um, just shortly ago. Even if it, yeah, it is a really small fraction of his overall stories. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because I might not be as fresh on this, and maybe it's been done elsewhere, is, is this the origin of the, the friendly neighborhood notes on characters? Didn't we get something in um Learning to Crawl? Yeah. I thought so. I just he he makes this funny comment here that I was like, well, I mean I don't think this is the origin, but it seems like it could be interpreted that way. I feel like 
it's popped up elsewhere. Yeah. I don't don't ask me to cite the issue. Learning to crawl comes out, but there might have also been others. But you know, we, we're always we're always. I don't know if we've ever truly had a. This is the first time I'm writing a note. You know what I mean? Like right, so. yeah. It'd be a weird a weird bubble for him to re- say. I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do we want to get to grades? Sure. I I I'm going to give this an A. I you know I I feel that this was a great capper, and um, you know, as conflicted as I've been with Dan Slott's work over the last couple of years, Dan. I mean, this is I I feel like his run, this issue, and then others. I mean, this this is about as good as a as a farewell as you can ask for for a comic book creator. And so few creators are given that opportunity to do a farewell issue like this. You know, most of them kind of just end a story and then the next thing picks up. I mean, I, I mean, I haven't been reading his stuff because I'm haven't been a huge fan of it lately. But how has some of Bendis's last Marvel stuff been? It doesn't really feel like it's been a puncture. I mean, I know he's going to the distinguished competition, but I don't know. Nothing he's written for Marvel feels like a, 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 you know, an exclamation point at the end. I would say Ultimate Spider-Man's end, or I guess Spider-Man's end, was a very personal story. And I haven't read 600 of. Iron Man, but uh, I would say that one is very like a, a personal story from Bendis. I would say to its fault, but uh, you should check it out when it when it inevitably pops up on Unlimited. Um, okay, but uh, just to see it in its own unique weirdness. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't think of another Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man writer that's really kind of like ended on like such a declarative. This is my send off to the character kind of thing. Um, yeah, well well cuz like you said it's 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 a very rare phenomenon for the character for for the creator to kind of not only know when their last issue is going to be but to kind of get that build. I mean, you know, like I would think like someone like DeFalco would have had a uh something poetic, but like he's never truly had a lead up to any kind of exit on the book, you know what I mean? Or 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 Stern. I mean, Stern just kind of abruptly left. But Stern is certainly someone who I feel has the sentiment to, to write something like that. You know, Straczynski could have had it, but he, you know, instead got saddled with One More Day and the rest is history there, you know? Yeah. So, and the po- uh, poetic issues like this one are typically handled in like kind of like the B titles, you know? You've got like your tangled webs and things like that. Uh, where people are let a little more loose in terms of not advancing a plot. You, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, so back to it. My grade, I'm going to give this an A as well. It couldn't be more different than Amazing Spider-Man 800. And I kind of right. love that about it, that you could get like so such wildly different takes on how to write a Spider-Man story and what a Spider-Man story should look like. And both I'm going to give A's to. You know, it's like this one's very uh, like 800 is very story heavy and it made me cry. And 801 is very uh, poetic. It didn't make me cry, but it definitely got me thinking in really uh, interesting ways. I I didn't tear up reading 801, but like I, you know, I was in the coffee shop next to um, 
the comic book shop that I always get my week, you know, my, my weekly comics from as I'm reading it. And I definitely had a few moments where I just kind of like put the comic down on the table and like kind of closed my eyes and had a little bit of chills to it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like sadness or, or tears, but like there was just something very ephemeral about this experience. Um, it, it felt very unique. I've not read a comic book quite like this in a while. Um, I like it. Um, at the same token, I don't know if this can be done with any kind of frequency. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, again, it's, it's, it's a context thing. It had, you know, like, otherwise, I think doing something like this either comes across as trite or it comes across as pompous. But I think in this context, it works, if that makes sense. Yeah, I that's totally right. You nailed it there. And I, I, I think that's exactly how I felt reading it. You know, it's a, you know, it just felt like a milestone. You know, it was like we're here, you know, like this is the final Dan Slot issue. Um, even if they Marvel is keen on advertising him being a part of Spider Geddon, but he's right. he's not actually writing that. But uh yeah, I mean like I'm looking forward because we will do everybody who's listening, we will do a you know, like roundup episode where we talk about Dan Slott's entire run, you know, as if you can't get enough of us talking about Dan Slott comics, which <laughs> we've almost exclusively done. But uh, we I, we will do that, you know, probably at the end of this season of the show. But uh, it's an end of a chapter here, Mark. Absolutely. Well, Nick Spencer, the 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 door to the bar is open so you know turn the lights on and get get to work well dan on that note let's just thank everyone uh for joining us for this review roundup of the all-new amazing spider talk dan our next episode should be out in a couple weeks what's going to be the title for that show yeah like we announced on the last episode it's going to be called goodbye spider dad we're going to be talking about the transition process of Stan's exit from writing Amazing Spider-Man. People who've read it know that it wasn't totally smooth. He was kind of like there and then not and then there again and then not. And we're going to kind of cover what happened there. What was it like for this guy to give up the reins and who he gave up the reins to. And then kind of, you know, all together sum up our thoughts on Stan Lee's time with Spider-Man and I guess Stan Lee, the man himself, as we look towards our future with season three. Yeah, definitely. And, and hopefully we'll have some uh, keen insights from people who witnessed this firsthand. Uh, those insights hopefully will be uh, accrued at that Terrificon event that we had mentioned in our intro, Dan. So, you Absolutely. know, things to look forward to, right? Yeah. And also for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week where we've already got a special review of the entire Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley run and a roundup review of July's B-title books, there's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of this new run, especially now that you've heard our reviews of issues 800 and 801. Why wait to get caught up in a few months? Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, B-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, You'll get access to some awesome commission artwork, this time coming from the great Alex Saviuk. Awesome. Well, uh, another thing you should check out on the list of things you should check out is the Untold Talks of Spider-Man, 
our brother's show, which is still going. Uh, and they've started doing this kind of segmented topics on their show where they're going to take like three issues that all deal with something similar and discuss them. So now they're talking about Green Goblin issues that aren't about Norman Osborn, where different people are the Green Goblin. And so they've gotten some really bizarre comics, including like recently The Goblin Construct. Do you remember this, Mark? Oh, what's that from? It's from Volume 2. There's two issues where there's the Goblin Construct. Wow. You've ba- blacked out the, the Mackie Byrne run. I, I Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's there's, one of the issues has like his like the Goblin hand pushing Spider-Man's face or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description and show notes for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. And then also, lastly, don't forget to give us a ring at 9 Red Goblin, which is definitely our creation, with your name and where you're calling from, and leave us a message for our 200th episode that we can play on the air. I cannot wait, Dan. I hope we get some really great calls for that. Uh, But in the interim, uh, where can people call on you on the social medias? Yeah, you can you can do exactly that at at sup spider talk on Twitter, where I'm kind of breaking down all the new issues and tweeting about all kinds of things, and also contemplating my future existence on the Twitter platform. Yeah, that's wonderful, Dan. Uh, well, don't go too far because I'm still there at chasing ASM blog, and of course you can always order my book, 100 Things Spider Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, Mark, in issue 801, we've learned that Spider-Man is a constant that's always there for all of us, improving all of our lives. But we also have another constant that we have on this show, and that's the quote from our dear Uncle Ben. Mark, would you like to regale our audience with it? I sure would. It's with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. Peace out.